This is David Tarkington, lead pastor at First Family. Thank you for downloading this sermon. The message presented here was preached at our Orange Park campus on March 5th, 2017. If you want more information about the church, go to firstfam.org or my website, davidtarkington.com. Matthew chapter 12, we'll be in verse 22. For years, the question has been asked of me and other pastors. For generations, this question has been asked. For centuries, the question has been asked. And the question that is often asked is this. Is there such a thing as an unforgivable sin? Is there such a thing as an unpardonable sin? And often those questions come from different backgrounds, but they tend to be laced with fear. Laced with the fear that I've gone too far. I get the question a lot at funerals. And it's the funeral question of the Christian who has just buried the loved one that they're pretty certain doesn't know Jesus. And so they're carrying the spiritual and emotional and relational baggage of the dead loved one. And they're wondering, is there a chance? See, here's what I know. People who love Jesus, gospel-saturated, love the Bible, read it and believe it, become universalists for about five minutes at every funeral. Because they want the people that they love to be in heaven, but they know it's too late at this point. Can't, wouldn't it be great if after you died you could pray and ask Jesus into your life? I think people are banking on that. doesn't quite work that way, and so there comes this question about the unforgivable sin. Is there, is there an unforgivable sin? And, and there's that one extreme, and then there's that extreme of people that go, you know, and you may know this person. They all have different names, but it's the same person, right? You don't know what I've done. I don't think God will ever forgive me. I've talked to men that were in the war decades ago that go, you don't know what I saw, you don't know what I had to do, you don't know what I did. Or I've talked to folks that, you know, they, they lament the reality of their, what they did during college because whatever they did when they finally got out of home for four or five years, they, they are thankful that social media didn't exist back then, that there's no visual record, but there's a mental record, and they are really struggling with the reality that could God forgive me for what I did during that season of my life. And then there are others that just, they have so much baggage, they just, they just hope, they just hope there's something that'll be, be covered there. I, I talked to one guy many years ago, and he had this response when we were getting into some very serious conversations about the gospel and about sin and about repentance and about new life. And he said this, here's his quote, me and God, we got us an understanding. And at that point, I realized I was speaking to a fool. And I mean that biblically. And he had been duped, and there was no breaking through that at that moment other than praying for him. He was a fool. Me and God, we got us an understanding. If you're hearing from God, that's a w- interesting anyway, but if what you're hearing from God is differing from what the Word of God says, here's some good grammar for you. That ain't God. And that is not a good understanding. Is there an unforgivable sin? A few years back, the internet and YouTube blew up with this atheistic group starting this unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, hashtag going to hell anyway, all those kind of things. It was kind of a fun little game on the internet. People were making videos and posting them. And yet this fear resonated. I had a mom ask me this this past week. I'm so concerned about my child that maybe they have gone too far, that it's the unforgivable sin. This is real life stuff right here. And rather than Google an answer, let's look at the Word of God for an answer. All right? So Matthew 12, verse 22, 
Here's an interesting story. We're going to go quickly. I know that my, <laughs> uh, I'll try to talk slowly for the sign language. We'll just work it out, right? She's good as long as it's not Julie. Okay, we're good. All right. That's what she just said. I'm just telling you what she said. Golly. Julie. <laughs> You're from the north. You talk faster. Okay. I'll speak southern. See how you translate that. Y'all, um, turn to Matthew. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute who was brought to him, Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if, the, it, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Verse 25 that we go back to, if this was a movie, that's the shift when the music changes, all right? The story's going on, and, and you ever notice in a movie when some character says something that, I mean, I, I'm thinking of a Western now, right? Some guy finally says whatever that one line is that really just, I mean, here's the line, and I've been pushing it and pushing it, but you poke the bear too much, and you go over the line, that's what's happened right here. Verse 25, the Pharisees went here and then jumped here, and Jesus, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like Clint Eastwood music or whatever. It's like Jesus then goes, here's, there it is, thank you. I can't do that whistle. I sense it, you know, this is a modern paraphrase interpretation, not inspired, just my view, but you can almost see Jesus raise an eyebrow, turn around, and in modern vernacular say, seriously, seriously, you're going to go there? We're going to do this? You're going to do this now? Because this is the same Christ that lay earlier when they were picking on him, right? He walked away. He says, not time, not time, not going to go there. Mm-hmm. But when you say that one word, when he said whatever he said, it's like, okay, we're going to talk about this right now. The story is the third portrait of Jesus' power and identity in Matthew's gospel. It has the same characters, very familiar. You have Jesus, you have disciples. You have the legalist Pharisees that are out to get him. You have somebody that needs to be healed. There's a withered man, man with a withered hand last time. This time it's a blind, mute guy. And you have the crowd. The story begins when the demon-oppressed man is brought to Christ. It's a unique story. That in and of itself makes us ask more questions than we have time to get into. Demon oppression re um, revealed itself in this story by making the man mute and blind. Does that mean every blind person is demon-oppressed? No, but in this story, that's the case. We do live in a demon-oppressed fallen world. That was indicative from the fall all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So we, we do face those spiritual battles all the time. But in this case, they brought the man to him. Jesus heals him, and the two things that were evident of evil upon him are now gone. He can see, and he can talk. And the crowd gives a cheer, and they say this, 
can this be the son of David? Now, that's confusing to some. I've talked to some new believers and those that are new to the Christian faith. I've even had a young man ask me this. In all honesty, this is a great question, by the way. He said, I see that he is called the son of David, but man, every Christmas Jesus is called the son of Joseph, and this is very confusing for me. Is he the son of David? Is he the son of Joseph? And that's a great question. It's a lineage issue. It's a genealogy issue. Yeah, his earthly father is Joseph, but in Matthew 1, which you may have covered in your small group this morning, you you see the genealogy of Christ, and you'll see that David was a king in the Old Testament, and the Messiah was prophesied to come out of David's lineage. And so ultimately what this crowd is saying is, is this the Messiah that we've been waiting for? This is him, right? Because everything Jesus did and everything he said proved that over and over And I believe this. I believe even the Pharisees knew he was the Messiah. They just weren't ready and didn't like it. Because there's no indication that they don't believe he healed the guy. They believe he healed the guy. They've read the Old Testament. They know the Word. And they know this, and yet, look at this. This is crazy. At this moment, they throw out the most illogical statement yet. They claim aloud that Jesus is healing a demonic oppressed man through the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now that's weird enough. That's just a weird passage. Let me, let me give you a little background. A little background. Beelzebul, or your Bible may say Beelzebub, right? Same name, different transliteration. It's a Greek form of an Old Testament name, Baal Zebub. Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal, the false god, the god, fertility god, the Old Testament Philistine god, all right? You will see this guy referenced in the Old Testament numerous times. Was he really a god? No. Was he demonic? Yes. Was it the enemy's tactic? Absolutely. A false god, a demon, described in 2 Kings as the Lord of the Flies. That was the definition that they gave him. That was prior to the, whatever book you had to read in school called Lord of the Flies. So, Lord of the Flies, all the way back to 2 Kings. Over time, as the Philistines were defeated, the Jews kept the Beelzebub name, but they, they merged it, they kind of changed it up a little bit. And um, here, here's what it ultimately means when it turned into Beelzebul, and then Greek in Beelzebub. It means Lord of Dung. Poop God. That's what it means. Right? It means the Lord of Filth. Everything filthy, nasty, flies would fly around it is representative by the evil in this demonic understanding. Now, that's a bad deal. That's nice and all that. I mean, that's, that's pretty gross. But here's what they did. They are talking to the Son of God, God the Son, and they are accusing Him of using... It's not a subservient devil. This is Satan. This is just another name for Satan. They are accusing him of casting out demons with the power of Satan. Now, it's one thing to to go right up to the line, but they crossed it with this one. The illogic is prominent. Satan does not cast out Satan. That is self-defeating. It makes absolutely no sense. It's inconsistent. To this, Jesus gives three undeniable conclusions. First, he says this. It can't be Satan. That makes absolutely no sense. House divided will fall. Satan won't cast himself out to prove a point. It's not happening. It doesn't work. 
And he basically says, and your boys, your disciples, your sons, they're casting out demons. Are they using Satan as well? So he threw it back on him. Then he made this point. He said, if it's not the power of Satan, there's only one other it could come from. The power must come from God. The Pharisees had denied that. Jesus says they're ludicrous in what they just said. Second thing he makes very clear is there's a strong man here. You catch the passage about the strong man? The strong man is presented this way. The enemy, Satan, has been given dominion of the earth, right? He's given control, limited control, but control. And so the strong man is Satan, and his house is the earth. And he sets it up, and he sets up cultural norms and worldviews and all those things, same old, same old, all the time, that are anti-God, anti-Christ, pushing against righteousness and holiness. This is nothing new. You just have to be living in this chapter right today. It wasn't new then. And Jesus says, here's, the par- here's, here's what he's saying. If a strong man owns a house, how do you go into that house and ransack the house? You have to tie up the strong man. If you're going to break into a house that's owned by a strong guy and you're going to ransack the house for whatever reason, the only way you're going to do it is you've got to tie up and be stronger than the strong man. The devil, Satan, Beelzebub, is the strong man. He has limited power. Now, Star Wars theology messes people's brains up. Star Wars theology is wrong and broken. Keep it as entertainment because that that pseudo-Buddhist theology has entered into many Christians' minds. Make sure you don't, uh, don't mess this around. In Star Wars, there's the dark side and the light side, right? And you can kind of go back and forth. And there's the, they're kind of equals. What people have done is they've raised Satan up to become the evil equal to God or evil equal to Jesus. There's the devil on this shoulder and there's the angel on this the Satan is not the evil equal to Jesus. He is a created being given limited dominion. He is a strong man. Jesus makes it clear. Jesus is a stronger man. That's what he says. And here's what's happened. Jesus shows up in the enemy's house and he starts messing with stuff. He starts healing people. He starts rescuing people. He starts proclaiming the truth. He starts proclaiming the gospel. And it's messing with the enemy. And, the, and this is what Christ is saying at this point. He says, how, are you gonna, how do you mess up a strong man's house? You've got to tie up the strong man. Who can tie up the strong man? A stronger man. God is the stronger man. Third thing. This one's today. This one you can't walk away from. This one we're going to have to deal with. Neutrality is not an option. There is no Switzerland in the faith world. You can't be neutral. You can't be on the fence. You can't say, I think Jesus is a good teacher, but I don't think he's the son of God. He either is who he says he is, or is he absolutely not who he says he is. There is no fence walking here. And this, this neutrality, this fence setting is an issue for many. You are either for Christ or against Christ. And that's a heavy thing because we have raised, gener- you know, we talked about this. Why are we lamenting the fact that we're losing a generation? Because we raised generation after generation after generation and counted it a win if we could get people to memorize verses and get baptized without transformation. Now, I can't make somebody a Christian. But I can't give them, I cannot and should not give anybody false hope that they're in when they're not. I mean, you got people who go, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I, I you know, I said, let me ask you this. All right, let's just, let's just go here. 
Are you engaging the lost world for the sake of Christ? Well, no, not really. Then you're abandoning the Great Commission by choice, correct? Because the Great Commission said, you're a Christian, you're a disciple, go replicate, make disciples. But what we do is we celebrate isolationism. I only like Christians, I only hang out with Christians, I only do Christian stuff, I watch Christian movies, listen to Christian music, eat Christian mints, that's what I do. And I've created this little bubble around me. And I'm okay, right? You're either for Him, meaning I'm for Him and everything He says, I'm going to do my best to fall in line and be loyal and obedient, or I'm against Him, there is no just going through the motions. There is no neutrality. Christ is pretty harsh. And I think it's because he loves so deeply. I got people saying, why are we planting another church in Fleming Island? Why are we putting a campus out there? Why are we putting a campus out at Swimming Pin Creek Elementary School? I think I saw the numbers. I think Josh gave them to us yesterday. There's 14,800 people within a one-mile radius of Swimming Pin Elementary School. 14,800 people. You got 25 churches in a three-mile radius. There's still 67% of those 14,800 people, no church connection, don't want a church connection, don't know they need Jesus. But as long as we have our Sunday school class or our youth group with our 30 and no more or whatever, we're good. We've got to go. People say, why do you want to send people to Orlando? Because I don't want to send them to hell. I'd rather send them to Orlando to help others not go to hell. I'd rather send us wherever we must go for the sake of the gospel. We've got to go. You can't just be neutral in this. It is not a win to fill your Sunday school classroom. It's not a win. It is a win to send more than we bring in. It is a win when we are sending. People are, you know, I know folks, man, we need to build another, not here. We don't need to build another building. That ain't happening. But I talked about, we need to build another building. We need more seating capacity, more seating capacity. I want more sending capacity, folks. I want more sending capacity. Give me a building that seats 200 with 1,000 out there serving. It's much better than a building that seats 1,500 with 250 seats. And nobody out there. You're either in or you're not. Many in our culture are discovering now that even regarding worldviews and cultural morality norms, they contradict biblical views. Let me just say this. Pastors, pastors know this, right? There's not a pastor worth his salt in America today that believes he can stay neutral on cultural issues and it's going to be all, all okay. At some point, every pastor is going to have to make a statement about cultural morality, the LGBT revolution, uh, the, the immigration issues, uh, love, life, whatever it is. You're going to have to make a statement. You cannot stay neutral on these issues. And guess what? Neither can any other Christian because the questions are being asked and they must be answered. There is no fence setting on this. It's it's impossible. Which leads us to this statement. The unforgivable sin. Oh, we're out of time. I guess we'll deal with it later. Verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Did you catch that? Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Is there such a thing as an unforgivable, unpardonable sin? Yes, Christ mentioned it right there. His words. 
Some of you come from a faith background that say, well, I think suicide's an unforgivable sin. No, we don't recommend it, never would encourage it, but it's not there. Well, I think whatever is an unforgivable sin. No, it's not there. What's the unforgivable sin? Speaking against the Spirit in this way. And the teaching of the Word of God says that the, the, the parameters that allow that to happen don't even really exist anymore. But let's look at this. The words from Christ are serious, therefore we must understand them correctly. I'll do this quickly. Two things we must understand. Overall context and specific context. Folks, if you're a verse a day keeping the devil away devotional person, can I encourage you to read more than a verse a day? If you only, do, if you only read once a week, do more than a verse. Get some context in there. Read the passage. I talked to Neil Cordell, who is over at Fruit Cove Baptist. He used to work at Lifeway. You've heard of Lifeway? Right? So Lifeway makes Sunday school curriculum. One of the things they do. You know, one of the number one complaints Lifeway received for years, probably still receives from churches, good old Baptists, calling to complain because that's, you know, a spiritual gift. When we complain, what are they complaining about to Lifeway regarding Sunday school curriculum? This is so repetitious. It feels like we just did this lesson. Now, if you've ever said that, just know that you fall in line with 80% of Southern Baptists who call Lifeway. So, I laughed at him and I said, that was the video he says, call all the time, all the time, so repetitious. I said, what'd you say? He said, well, we're getting with, at the time it was Jimmy Draper, he said, we're getting with Dr. Draper and considering the Apocrypha maybe because apparently we need new material. Here's a point. There are no new books to the Scripture and we're not looking at the Apocrypha. And if you are reading a Bible that has extra books that are not in the Old or New Testament, that's a cult, get rid of that Bible. Let me just tell you, it is repetitious. Have you ever noticed that the Matthew of Mark sounds a whole lot like the Matthew, uh, or the Gospel of the Matthew of Mark? The Gospel of Mark sounds a lot like the Gospel of Matthew. Have you ever noticed that you'll read some things by Matthew and it sounds like Isaiah? There is repetition in the Scripture. We learn through repetition. It is repetition. There's not a new sequel out. It's the same Bible. None of us have it all figured out. That's why we keep going back to it. And I look at this overall context. Let me give you this passage briefly. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's Old Testament stuff for you. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Three of my favorite words in Scripture. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Here's the point. Consequences will remain. God is a just God, but God is what? A forgiving God. God is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. And for your sake and my sake, He's slow to anger, right? He is forgiving. So the full overall context, you can't just look at this verse in Matthew and go, God, there's an unforgivable sin, how bad God is. No, God's character, God's nature has been echoed throughout the Word, throughout the centuries as a forgiving, just God. Slow to anger. And thankfully, as I look at Old Testament characters that experience God's merciful delay and anger and His ultimate forgiveness, I am encouraged, and they should have been, because if you were God or if I were God, we'd have Sodom and Gomorrah some of those people quickly. Can you imagine? People who don't deserve... Do you, can you think of people in the Old Testament that don't deserve God? Like Adam and Eve? Noah, Noah's a good guy, a righteous guy, but then there's that whole naked drunk story. That's bad. Then there's Moses, the murderer. Then there's Abraham, the guy who is more concerned about his own safety than that of his wife. Then there's uh, uh, Isaac, and then there's Jacob. He's a deceiver. Then you got Joseph, 
Oh, Joseph, coat of many colors. Man, that guy was a jerk as a teenager, right? How arrogant and prideful. You look at it from the brother's perspective. Now, they sin, but good grief. God humbled him. Moses the murderer, David the murderer, David the adulterer. None of them deserve grace. None of them deserve to be forgiven. They all have been forgiven. New Testament, Matthew, Matthew. Matthew's a disciple. Nobody picks Matthew for the team, right? Matthew can't do a quick 40-yard dash. He's not going to pass the, the, the entrance exam. No one wants Matthew but Jesus. Paul, we love talking about Paul. You know what Paul was before he became a Christian, right? A Jewish terrorist. He was a terrorist. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. That's what he was doing. He was killing people for, in religious, religious persecution. He was killing people in the name of God. Does that sound like terrorism? That's what he's doing. And he gets rescued. So when you think about the, the character of God, you know he is a forgiving God. But here is the specific context, and you have to, we need to get this. Mm. These people, these Pharisees, were showing blatant opposition to Jesus while claiming to represent God. They had the religious uniform on, and they claimed that Jesus wasn't, they, it, it's worse. Not only did they go, you're not of God, they said, you're not only not of God, you're of the devil. And that's when Jesus turned around and the music started. This context helps, helps us understand why Jesus goes here. It's about blasphemy, which is serious. Sin, all sin is serious. You don't grade sin, but this is very serious, as all of it is. To blaspheme is to slander. That being said, Jesus speaks harshly but truthfully. He says this very carefully and very clearly. Blasphemy against the Son is forgivable. Blasphemy against the Spirit is not. That's weird. Aren't they the same? Why is this? Because the Spirit of God is the avenue for forgiveness. Through the Spirit of God, we repent. Through the Spirit of God, we have been drawn to the Father, drawn to the Son. Through the Spirit of God, He is the avenue of drawing us to the Son. And to blaspheme Him is to miss the way. Some fear they have said words against the Holy Spirit and therefore have committed the unpardonable. Well, like I said, unless you're a Pharisee and Jesus Christ is physically in front of you and you've just claimed after seeing Him uh, heal uh, a demon-possessed man in your presence physically, you're probably not in that circumstance. That's very specific to a three-year period. But is there an unforgivable sin today? Ooh, that's where it really hits, right? And the answer is absolutely, there's still an unforgivable sin. And what is that unforgivable sin? It's a sin against the Spirit of God, very much like what he said. But it is the sin of rejection to the Spirit of God. Meaning this, if you die and you have rejected the Spirit's prompting for your entire breathing life, it is not forgivable at that moment. You do not get to heaven. You do not get eternal life. You can't get saved because you, you, you decided you're going to know Jesus after you die one way or the other. But you won't know Him as in a relationship, as a child with a home reserved unless while breathing on this planet through the drawing of the Spirit, you surrender to Him and that is much deeper than repeat a prayer after me and get baptized and welcome to church. To die apart from repentance is to miss the grace and mercy of God. Oh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not judging this. I'm just going to call it what it is. If you ate the cracker and drank the juice and your salvation is based on some prayer you prayed when you were four, but you don't know it and you're not living it and you're living in sin today, you, you took this in an improper manner. You did. 
You can't take the cracker and the juice while having an affair and think it's all cool. You can't do this and go look at porn on your phone. You can't do this. You understand that? People ask, well, you know, the family of God, the family of God. There are some responsibilities when you join the family, and we probably have not been as, 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 as in, focused on this as we should. I remember years, you know, people say, hey, you need to join the church, you need to join the church. I grew up Baptist. You know the reason that people were given as to why they should join a local church? Because some of you have yet to join. You're Christians, but you're not members. You know one of the reasons Baptists were giving while others should join their church? So you can vote and be on a committee. Can I just say, those are dumb reasons. If you join a church because you want to be on a committee, you're sick in the head already. You're, I mean, it's a mess. That's just weird. What are you? Why do you do that? Why? Why would anybody? I want to go sit in a room for two hours and debate minutia and walk out thinking, did we do anything? That's what I want to do. Nobody wants to join a committee. People serve because God calls them to do that. That's a different story. So why be a part of a family? Because you need it. I need it. Because apart from that, I'm a lone ranger. Apart from being in a family, apart from being in the family of God, apart from some, some church discipline and understanding biblical and pastoral and leadership authority and falling under that, we are going to fall prey to some really messed up theology that is built around my independence, not my dependence. Now I'll close with this. I read this and I thought, boy, this is a good way to sum it up. I'll just wrap it up this way. Many people fear they have committed some sin that God cannot or will not forgive. And they feel that there is no hope for them no matter what they do. Satan would like nothing more than to keep people laboring under that misconception. God gives encouragement to the sinner who is convicted of his sin. In James 4, 8, it says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. In Romans 5, 20, it says, now the law came and increased and to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the, and the testimony of Paul to Timothy affirms this, and Paul's own life, it affirms this, that God can and will save those who will come to Him in repentance. If Remember, we've already talked about this, but unconditional forgiveness is universalism, not biblical theology. Not everybody gets forgiven because not everybody goes to heaven. Conditional forgiveness partnered with God's unconditional love leads to a transaction where through your repentance and my repentance, I can know God and have this settled today. If you're suffering under a load of guilt, rest assured, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. You know how I know that? Because you're still here. But, but if nothing is done with this, and you, the next time you're here is in a box, then you've committed it. And I will do my best to comfort your family. But I will not give them false platitudes to let them think you're in heaven when everybody knows likely you're not. Jesus promised in Hebrews 7.25, the writer of Hebrews says this, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. 
Jesus was angry when the Pharisees accused him of using the devil to do the Lord's work. And he said, there is an unforgivable sin. Those Pharisees, they didn't make it to heaven. It was done. But for you and me today, most of us here probably already have settled that. But some of you may still yet need to do that. Why not today? 